your body wants to be in homeostasis, right? And so we have these elevated levels of cortisol all season long in our bloodstream, the stress hormone, um, because we wake up every day, we don't know what it's going to bring, but we know it's probably going to be hard. <laughs> and so um, our bodies get super used to that. And then the, it goes from 100 to zero and we get laid off in the off season and our bodies still want that cortisol level because it's what they're used to. And, and reintegrating with our families and back into non-fire life combined with our bodies kind of seeking this level of cortisol, it takes time to, to integrate back in. And we really don't prepare people for that. Welcome to Life with Fire podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Monti, and today we're going to be covering wildland firefighter mental health. We'll dig into that in a minute here, but being that this is our last episode of the first season of Life with Fire, I just wanted to give a quick thank you to everybody for supporting us in our first season, whether it was listening to us or subscribing or reviewing or even just liking or sharing a post of ours on Instagram. There have been a few people in particular who have really made this dream possible, and the first is Luke Mayfield and Mystery Ranch in general, who sponsored us, you know, when we were just getting started, and this was just barely an idea, and I hadn't even done an interview yet. So thank you to Luke and Mystery Ranch for the early support of the podcast. And another huge thanks goes out to my friend Lee McClelland, who was an editor with me at our college newspaper at Northern Michigan University and has supported the podcast substantially this year, and his gracious donations have been used to buy more audio equipment as well as get a few of the episodes transcribed in both English and Spanish. So huge thank you to Lee for the support as well this year. My final thanks goes out to the folks that have donated to our Patreon, which I just started a few weeks ago. Um, If you guys donate to the Patreon, you can get a few items from Mystery Ranch. Uh, We have some notepads. We have some really rad patches. We have some t-shirts. So go check out our Patreon page. And if you can, you know, maybe make a donation that way. Looking forward, I'm hoping to start a new season in March or so. And I really hope to dig a little deeper and be able to do a little bit of on the ground work for the next season of the podcast. Um, We'll see what COVID says about that. But I am looking forward to telling more stories, digging a little bit deeper talking to more folks, and bringing more perspective to the conversations that we're having about wildfires. So moving into today's episode, it's going to be all about wildland firefighter mental health. This topic is near and dear to me as I have a lot of friends who are still working in wildland fire and a lot of friends, as it turns out, who are struggling with mental health, um, particularly in the off-season. So I spoke with a few of my firefighter friends, um, people from hand crews, from hotshot crews, repel crews, and even a Canadian wildland firefighter who um, all offer some perspective on the challenges they face in the off-season as well as the ones that they face during the season, especially as fire seasons grow more destructive, more severe, and of course longer. Whether you fight fire or know a wildland firefighter or simply are interested in the experiences of wildland firefighters, I think you'll take a lot from this episode, and I'll also be providing a few resources at the end of the episode as well as in the show notes. On that note, let's uh, start it off with Ben McLean. Ben is a senior firefighter on a hotshot crew in California and has been doing some work with the folks in D.C. at the uh, Forest Service office to sort of figure out how to implement better mental health resources for uh, firefighters, particularly for seasonal wildland firefighters. 
We already heard a little bit from Ben at the beginning of this episode, but here's a bit more from him, and thank you for listening. There's there's this sense of, um, you know, anxiety and like I've got to be doing something you just can't you can't let down and everyone tells you like oh you need to recover you need to rest you know R&R you had a long season and um and it's but it's for some something internally just doesn't feel right about that and it really is I mean uh, you know I'm, I'm kind of a nerd of science and so it really it really does relate to those cortisol levels in our blood and um and just the understanding of that brought me a lot of peace you have all this structure throughout your day during fire season. And then that structure all goes away. And that core group of people that you've established this trust and this organizational trust and the psychological safety with go, you know, go away. What Ben speaks to here is a huge element in uh, the sort of mental health crisis facing wildland firefighters right now. You have this job that's deeply engaging that pretty much takes you away from your family, friends, and normal life for six full months out of the year. Uh, you're working 16-hour days. You're getting two days off every you know, two weeks if you're lucky, every three weeks occasionally. And you are 100% engaged in this job. Then sort of at the end of the season, you're sort of dropped off and left to pick up the pieces. And oftentimes that is a huge transition to make after spending six months with the same 20 people or the same 10 people, and then sort of being dropped back into your personal life to pick up the pieces. With this being the case, a lot of the work that Ben's doing with the folks in DC centers around the idea that peer support could be a really good tool to put in wildland firefighters' toolboxes for the off-season especially. Here's Ben with a little more about what that might look like. What I've found is the most effective in, in dealing with some of these, some of these outcomes after the season is just the peer support, talking to people that know the business. And, um, Dr. Minda O's is, is, has done some great work with Cal fire in that realm and developing, uh, culturally competent clinicians, um, people who, you know, can, can from a professional basis and, and, and background, um, help people through some of the, the, psychological health issues that they face during the off season and off season blues. Um, but even with that, just this, that term clinician, um, turns a lot of folks off for, of the, uh, of, of, of even seeking, you know, any, and accepting, you know, in discussing any of these stuff or any of these types of, of issues, um, understandably so, cause it becomes super real when you're like seeking help for it. And so, uh, one of the things just amongst my crew and I'm no expert in this. I mean, my background is in fire ecology and hotshotting. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not a mental health expert, but I've been through it and I've had those issues in the off season and, and I've experienced what it's like. We, we tell, we tell people in their basic 32s or in their first season on crew or with an engine or wherever, Hey, here's what to expect physically. Here's the challenges you're going to face, but we don't talk to them about what, those challenges in the off season and are going to be like, and the, the, the physical, um, you know, the things like the cortisol in your blood, that sort of stuff isn't described. So you're left just with this, this residual anxiety that you don't know where it's coming from. And, um, and I think just discussing not even that deep of, 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 uh, subject matter with each other, but um, just 
life in general and what it's like and, and the relationship struggles and you know the the temptation to drink more that you don't really you know that you didn't have before you got into fire um, because it it sort of helps you achieve that reduce that cortisol and achieve that kind of easy feeling um, you know that that's the kind of stuff that that we're best at just talking through with each other and being honest with each other about um, you take a lot of the power away from it when it's not hidden anymore. This residual anxiety that Ben talks about is very real. Uh, having experienced it myself for my two off seasons while I was a hotshot, I think it was specifically pronounced in those two off seasons because of how much work we do on shot crews. Um, so I, I can understand that residual anxiety, but there are other things that contribute to this. The most notable of which are, of course, uh, the lack of structure and the loss of your crew, even if temporarily. You know, these are the folks that you've developed really strong relationships with over the course of six months or years, depending on how long you've been on the crew. Um, and then additionally, almost every firefighter I spoke with pointed to a severe lack of mental health resources that are available to them during the off-season. Another big contributing factor to this anxiety are finances. Most seasonal firefighters that work for the federal government make between $12 and $15 an hour, which isn't a lot and makes off-season finances pretty difficult and can really put a strain on things in both the off-season and during fire season, especially because a lot of wildland firefighter income comes from overtime. So a slow summer with not a lot of hours or not a lot of overtime can end up leaving firefighters pretty strapped for cash. That, that kind of anxiety for me manifested in the idea of like, what is the next season going to look like? And what is my financial situation going to be? And how am I going to figure out um, what I'm doing? And then also, you know, with, with it being the first season and it not being that busy, you know, you, you kind of, for me, I had to figure out like, is this going to be a financially justifiable career option? This is Coleman Wilson. Coleman worked on a hand crew for his first season in fire this last summer in Utah. Coleman spoke a lot to the financial anxiety of not really knowing if this is a viable path forward, uh, especially financially. He also spoke to another huge downfall of his job, which is the strain that it puts on relationships. On many fire crews, especially as a seasonal, it's pretty expected that you're going to miss a lot of weddings and birthdays and graduations and all the milestones that take place through the summer. This can place a lot of strain on relationships with spouses or partners, with kids, with family in general, and particularly so when you kind of just drop back into their lives in October or November when the season ends, and you're kind of expected to just reintegrate with uh, your family life. Here's Coleman with a bit more of his experience of kind of dropping back into his personal life at the end of fire season. The other unique thing was, um, I think I kind of mentioned it to you when we were starting chat is just that feeling of being like a, a parachute, what I call a parachute boyfriend, where she's like, oh, I'm never here. And then every once in a while, I just like drop through the roof and then I show up for a few days and I might be gone again. And then now it's the complete opposite where it's like, I dropped through the roof and I'm staying and I don't have a job. And <laughs> we're having to figure out like, okay, what's our new balance for our personal lives and, and what, what, what we need to do to to manage our and mitigate our um, our relationship now that I'm also just like back and hanging out. <laughs> Next, we're going to hear from Gabby Casper. Gabby just finished her first season as a repeller in Oregon, 
and shared a little bit about her history of anxiety and depression, which she feels has been exacerbated by fire seasons, but also a little bit about the support system that she's built for herself in order to sort of manage those mental health challenges in the off season. Here's Gabby. Transitioning out of fire into the off season and, you know, catering to relationships and friendships that you put on the back burner is one of the the main things for me that that I have uh, an issue with because I, I tend to isolate when my normal like routine hits hits a wall or is is over and I don't know what to do so and then yeah I get low and then I isolate and I stop talking to people who care about me and I stop talking about things that are the most important and I and I kind of lie to myself and and you know slip into that that weird dark place where I don't know what's wrong because I don't want to admit what's wrong. And I've always kind of suffered with anxiety and, and low-key depression, but I think I think fire amplifies that after the season is over because you don't have your normal support system, you don't have your normal routines going on. You have to re-enter yourself into society and into your own relationships and friendships, and, and there's no one way to do that ever, especially during like a, a pandemic and nothing's normal and you you can't do anything that you used to do normally. Um, So it's extra hard this year, I think. I mentioned a lack of mental health resources available for wildland firefighters earlier, and Gabby has her own experiences with this shortcoming. Here she is with a bit more on that. Everybody's so burnt out. Nobody's going to direct you in the right direction. Your supervisors are dealing with their own shit. Like, what, what do you do? Where do you go? Who do you talk to? that actually understands what you're going through you know and isn't paid to understand what you're going through i i don't know it's a weird it's a weird gamble in my opinion you know i'm not embarrassed to talk about it but i take anti-anxiety medication Mm -hmm. um and if i had insurance i would go see a therapist for sure um sometimes i i go and do the um oh my gosh what's it called the better help thing i don't know if you're familiar with that app no. super awesome uh, resource. Uh, you can have access to really cheap therapists, sometimes free therapists if you qualify for it. Um, they connect you with people in your community to talk to or certain groups if you need them. Um, but I've established now in the past like two years, a really good support system. And, and my people know how I isolate and kind of how I operate and stuff like that. And uh And I rely heavily on like two or three people in in my world. The support system that Gabby talks about is critical. And it's all the more critical that wildland firefighters are able to find people who they can talk to who kind of understand this world a little bit. This idea of peer support is definitely the foundation of what Ben and some of the folks in D.C. are attempting to implement and kind of the conversations that are happening are centering around peer support. But the biggest obstacle in actually implementing these policies and structures is the fact that fire culture itself is pretty inherently against asking for help. This is a culture that prides itself on putting their heads down, getting the work done, and whining very little about it. So asking them to talk about their feelings or even ask for help is kind of a big ask. I talked about fire culture a little bit with Eddie Clemensic, who is a hotshot in Northern California and has been for five years. Eddie and I spoke about fire culture, and he offered a little bit of perspective as to why it's often difficult for wildland firefighters to 
open up and discuss those challenges that they face, uh, whether it's during the fire season or in the off season. Here's Eddie with a bit more. It's just one of those things that I'm, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's something worth mentioning. It's still like that, that ego inside of me, that, that manly tough guy that has to always be there, even though I know that's not the case anymore. And I know it's, it's totally fine to want help and kind of, and be more open. I'm still just kind of working towards that. Just, I think having the better resources for sure. And then just knowing how to contact those resources. So I know like we have the EAP and I, I can't even tell you what it stands for. Cause I, I hear it one time in the beginning of the season and that's the end of it. But just, I, if we made more of an effort in, talking to our folks mid-season, nearing the end of the season, just checking up on everybody and not just in a circle saying, hey, everybody's doing good. All right, cool. Because obviously if you're in a big group of people, you're not going to be the one person like, actually, I, I'm, I'm a little, little off today. Another critical element of the off-season blues are the ever-worsening fire seasons that we're seeing. seems like every year things get more severe. Fire seasons extend longer, fires are growing and burning with more intensity, and this season in particular was hugely devastating to firefighters and fire crews in the, uh, in the West in general, but particularly in the Pacific Northwest in California, where fires ripped through communities, directly impacted the family and friends of firefighters and fire crews, in some cases burning down fire crew barracks and stations in California, killing firefighters and generally just extending beyond the historical norms for what we expect fire seasons to be. Being that Eddie's crew is based out of Northern California, they spent most of the fire season between August and November working historically massive wildfires such as the August Complex and the North Complex. Not only did the crew work these fires, but some of the crew members were also deeply impacted personally by the very wildfires that they were fighting. Here's more from Eddie. This, yeah, this season was definitely an eye-opener for me as well. I mean, this is only my fifth year in fire and the fourth on a crew. And this was our first thousand-hour season the crews had. Yeah, we were on the, the Slater that came out of Happy Camp. And we had one of our rookies, she, she lives in Happy Camp. And so we were on our day 15 coming home from the north. And that's when everything blew up. And she's trying to get a hold of her boyfriend who is on an engine at Happy Camp trying to find out if her house is still up. And that was like the biggest like like what the fuck moment. Like I the whole sky was just like black from Quincy to Northern California to Gasky. It was the sky was just black and it was super somber, like all the highways are closed. We're trying to figure out how do we get home. You had one word to describe the season how what what would you what would you say oof you could you could use that <laughs> that's a good word oof. Oof. <laughs> well obviously this season was different in multiple aspects being right. covid and the severe weather that we had middle of the season 
and prior to that it was ops normal and we're getting out we're having regular shifts and then yeah once everything hit it it just went off we spent august with maybe i think four days in unpaid status and that continued through september and october and for most some of the crews even into november it was it was a cool like a congratulatory moment at the end when we're like yeah we we, we passed that barrier it was such a wanted number to have a thousand hours and then at the end of it you're it's like all right well i want to go home now as you can see, this cocktail of financial anxiety and working really hard all summer to just sort of not have any structure in the winter and relationship anxiety and not seeing your kids very often and all these things play into uh, the mental wellness of wildland firefighters. But there's another big layer here, and that layer is PTSD. PTSD and wildland fire can be caused by any number of things, but is most often associated with seeing a crew member injured or potentially losing a coworker or a past coworker on or off the line. Kat Sullivan, who was a rookie on Helena Hotshots this last summer, has unfortunately and sadly lived this experience after losing her coworker and fellow rookie Sarah Madsen to a tragic car accident while Sarah was driving home from a fire assignment in September. It's hard to explain the depth of the friendships that you develop on a fire crew, particularly with your fellow rookies and particularly with the other women on your crew, especially if there's only a few of them. Sarah and Kat were the two women on Helen Hotshots this summer, and being that they were both rookies, developed a deep friendship right off the bat. Kat was devastated when Sarah passed away, as was the entire fire community. In the days following Sarah's passing, it was clear that she had made a huge impact on every crew that she'd been on and that everyone had seemingly run into her along the way at some point. I myself had even met Sarah while at a hot spring in Idaho in 2017, and we immediately clicked and hit it off and talked about everything from skiing to being dirtbags to fire to all the mutual friends that we had developed over the course of a couple years of fighting fire and just simply living out west and being part of the ski community. Kat was incredibly kind in sharing her experiences in the immediate aftermath of Sarah's death and shared some of the sort of shortcomings that she's seen in the way that the Forest Service and other federal agencies help manage grief and keep tabs on these employees who have been through almost insurmountable grief through the fire season. A quick warning that the next little excerpt does contain some explicit language. Especially when you are a rookie on a hotshot crew, like her and I were the only rookies on the crew. So um, we kind of like had a sisterly bond, um, you know, going into it and just like it grew from there. So, um, yeah, it was, it was interesting because it was like, we were closer, her and I were like the closest on the crew. Um, and not a lot of the guys really like got, um, the opportunity to like really get to know her sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was like, for me, it was like, it was totally like on a different level of like, you know, like, holy shit, like, this this happened sort of thing. Um, and I think, I mean, it's interesting because it's, like, you know, it happened, like, in the middle of the season or at the end of the season there, 
and you take a week off or whatever and maybe that was like okay for some of the guys to go back to work after that but you know for me it was like you know it was like still I'm, I'm really fucked up so so it was like you know like you like have to go back to work you know it's like they can't just lay you off early you know like you're you're like baking on the unemployment you know so it's like something traumatic like that happens like you you can't just like if you quit you're not going to get that unemployment um you know it, it sucks that it has to do with money but yeah I mean for me it was like for the rest of the crew it was like you know relief to get back to work and to like you know go through the motions or whatever and like have your mind you know thinking of other things or or whatever but for me it was just like a constant reminder and so you know I tried to go back for a role a couple weeks after um I think like a couple days after her tribute and I just like couldn't do it you know it's like I went just like I was like fuck this like I I'm not supposed to be here right now one specific challenge for seasonals is, as mentioned before, health insurance, but particularly having health insurance in the summer when you often really can't use it because you're quite busy and it's hard to plan doctor's appointments uh, in advance, especially when you're on a two-hour callback and you can be potentially away from your home district for weeks, if not sometimes even months at a time. You do get your days off, but it's hard to make a plan for a doctor's appointment in those few days, so it leaves many seasonal employees waiting until the off-season to go to the doctor's office. This, of course, leaves seasonal firefighters with not a whole lot of options in terms of finding medical health resources in the off-season. And to make matters worse, the employee assistance program that's been mentioned a few times is only available when seasonal firefighters are employed by federal agencies and is not available during the off-season. During those four weeks off, I talked to a gal from the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. She was a trauma therapist, and she helped quite a bit. But, you know, like, you can't talk to them when you're fucking out there with no self-service on the fire line. So it's like, you know, going back to work, it's like, like, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty, like, surreal experience. You know, like, they, they did the SISM, and they talked about, like, the employee assistance program, you know, and it's like... You know, you get, like, six free, like, counseling sessions or whatever. Um, but they don't um, – I call it EAP, and they do not um, – they do not support seasonal employees. So it's, like, like we, we just get jack shit, you know? Like, once you get laid off, it's, like, you, you get nothing. I just, like, looked forward to the season ending, but then when it did, it was, like – it's like the whole world was like crashing down sort of thing. And, um, yeah. And then that's when I called, um, I got in touch with Nelda who's like, yeah, yeah. And she, she's starting a nonprofit to help, um, firefighters like with support in the off season. And like, luckily, um, through the Wildland Firefighter Foundation, um, they're paying for my sessions until I'm able to get, um, most of it covered through my insurance, will, but that will start in January. So, Wildland firefighters end up relying pretty heavily on these nonprofit organizations for mental health resources and therapy in the off-season. The work these organizations do is invaluable and heavily relied upon by wildland firefighters, and not just for mental health resources either. These organizations often help support wildland firefighters when they're injured, 
and they also offer assistance to the families of firefighters who have passed away. But these challenges and shortcomings aren't limited to the U.S. Canadian wildland firefighters have similar challenges in finding mental health resources and therapy in the off-season. In many ways, most of the challenges facing Canadian wildland firefighters are quite similar to the U.S., but I wanted to get some more perspective on the unique challenges facing Canadian wildland firefighters. So I spoke with Livy Hughes, who works for the British Columbia Wildfire Service. Here's Livy. Um, but in the past, I've struggled a bunch. I mean, and I'm sure this is becoming uh, more of the conversation is that I've struggled with depression and anxiety, and it seems to just fall right into the off season. As soon as fire season ends, it like it's like it begins again. And I think that um, I think a lot of that has to do with we don't stay in touch over the winter and we don't get engaged by our employer. I think that that's a big fault is that when you're no longer an employer of, say, the BC Wildfire Service, then you don't feel a part of a community and you don't feel like there's an outlet for you to have those conversations. Not everyone's willing to open up on a gray November day about something that happened on July 7th, you know? So I think that, uh, yeah, I think that increasingly the winters get harder and a little bit more complex, but skiing is skiing's where it's at. And I got myself a puppy right here and he's just <laughs> the best thing ever. So I think that those are the good things, but I definitely think the winters are hard for a lot of people. Been in some conversations with our executive director, Ian Meyer, and uh, our director of operations, um, Cliff Chapman, and they're really engaged with the process of trying to find an outlet for people because this experience of burnout is becoming more talked about, which I think is great. But as of right now, we have one counselor dedicated <laughs> to all of BC Wildfire Service, and she is booked up. Um, also, we have this people practices that's just in our fire center. I'm not sure about other fire centers uh, within BC. And we've been ha trying to have those conversations, but it's so hard without constant engagement. Like you can't expect a bunch of firefighters to tune into mental health all summer. So I've actually been involved with having discussions about organizational development in the BC Wildfire Service. There's going to be a resiliency position. And I think that... Um, we'll see way more resources available and way more conversations happening. But as of right now, I think that um, there's way too few resources for us. It's been super great to have conversations with people around the province. I think that that's becoming uh, more consistent and people are kind of starting to integrate new language that they haven't used before, especially in fire culture. You don't really talk about mental health because it's uh, soft. Mm -hmm. But I think that I think it'll become this is the way we have to start talking about it if we want to make this our career. And I think it's been great this year. People are starting to talk about uh, and I'm sure down there, too, about prescribed burning. And that I really think that if we make auxiliary positions available to be a career option and be full time, then not only are we helping with the mental health for people, we're helping with their finances, we're helping them long term learn, we're helping the forest be more resilient. I think that we need to be less about fire suppression and more about forest management. And I think that that's our year round thing. And I think that'll just become more prevalent, especially in light of California this year, Australia and BC and Washington in the last couple of years. 
There's a lot to be said for the idea that Liv offers here. At its core, it can be argued that our forest management issues and the way we treat our wildland firefighters are sort of inextricably connected in a way. We're desperate for more fuels management projects and prescribed fire that will help diminish the severity of the wildfires that we see in the summer. But we also have a workforce that's largely seasonal, works April through maybe November at the latest, and is then laid off to not really do much of the fuels management projects that we so desperately need in the off-season. While seasonal employees are important, and there should certainly be a contingency of, of wildland firefighters that work exclusively on suppression activities in the summer, it could be beneficial to establish a workforce that's not as suppression-focused in the summer and maybe works year-round to make sure that those fuels management projects and those prescribed fires are getting done and that we have the workforce necessary to get those projects done. Ideally, this would secure health insurance and benefits for year-round employees. It would bolster the workforce for necessary fuels management projects in the off-season, and it would also provide a little more engagement for those wildland firefighters that maybe aren't as keen on working seasonally and uprooting their lives every six months in order to go work a bunch of overtime and not really see their friends and family, nor really have much of a personal life at all. An even more critical step for the land agencies that employ wildland firefighters would be to compensate them more fairly, provide more robust mental health resources, and generally changing the way we recognize, support, and compensate this essential workforce, particularly as fire seasons grow increasingly longer, more severe, and more destructive. Wildland firefighters deserve so much more from their employers, and making a meaningful difference in wildland firefighter mental health will require getting them the compensation recognition and benefits they deserve. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox now. But before I end this episode, I did want to take it back to Ben McLean, who shares a little bit about how he structures his days to avoid the off-season saddies, as they're called. Here's Ben. But if I can bookend my day with, you know, some some PT for the right reasons in the morning, um, and it's not just breaking myself off because I, I'm, you know, anxious about being in shape for fire season next year, but more of having that, you know, what's the goal of this workout, a mental and emotional health, a nice slow run, a hike, something, you know, in the morning, um, yoga, you know, whatever it is. Uh, and then at the end of the day, some journaling and, you know, whether it's just, just a few things about the day, a sentence or two, um, I find that those two little wins, make it really hard for me to have a bad day. And it seems like in this reintegration period, and especially during the holidays, um, when it's the first time where you're really spending a lot of time around family and your loved ones who don't necessarily understand what you're going through. Um, you know, if I can have those two little wins and kind of book in my day with some successes, it makes it a lot harder to have a bad day. And it seems like whether, you know, that's what it is for me, but whatever it is for you, whether it's reading or, you know, education, having some sort of consistent, um, positive element that you're pursuing day to day, um, it makes you making it challenging to have a bad day without any wins. And so that you give yourself some successes to focus on and some progression to focus on is a great way to um, direct that anxiety and that cortisol in your blood um, in the right direction and and make it a productive thing because if you're not intentional about it it becomes counterproductive and you're, you're you will find ways to mitigate that 
And if you're not intentional about those ways, they're probably going to look more like drinking too much or sitting around playing video games all day. Or, you know, not that those things, you know, everything in moderation, right? Those things are great, you know, and they have a time and place. But but uh, if that's your outlet for for addressing some of those those uh, those strange off season kind of anxiety feelings consistently, then that's where we see the problematic behavioral health develop. Um, and uh, so that's what I've I've found. And then just having folks to talk to um, and checking in, doing those buddy checks with your crew members, you know, that's that's one of the things that I think is challenge so challenging because we come from so many different places and backgrounds. And then we all go back and away from each other during the off season. And, but there are wildland firefighters everywhere throughout the U S and that's one of the things that I think sort sort of some sort of programmatic, um, uh, you know, whether you know, warming fire type of, of, of activity spread out so that you could identify, help you identify, um, who those people as other wildland firefighters are in your area so that you can connect with those people, even if you're not around your crew during that off season, there are other wildland firefighters nearby you somewhere. And we, you know, with, with technology, we have access to folks where, you know, we spend the season with year round. And so that, you know, finding a few of those people, those other wildland firefighters in your area, wherever you're at, combined with some, you know, periodic weekly, monthly buddy checks um, with a few of your crewmates or your district mates um, to provide that sense of accountability. When you know that's coming, you know you're gonna be talking to those folks. It's that motivation to have something to, to bring to the table that's like, yeah, here's what I did with my off season week, you know, and, and, uh, and maybe you schedule some fun stuff to do with, you know, reconnect with those people um, so that you're not seeing them for the first time again come April or May. <laughs> Setting up kind of a peer support um, style uh, of, you know, almost like, I mean, the idea I have is almost like the warming fire, right? We've, you know, those of us who've done night shift, we know what it's like where it gets cold and you have a warming fire and you, the conversations that you have with each other, the depth um, is amazing. It's beautiful. And so, you know, think about like Alcoholics Anonymous or, you know, any of these style of, of your, it's weekly meetings um, where you're just kind of discussing what your week was like with people that know what you're going through, but don't have to talk about it directly. All right, folks, that's our episode for today. For more information about how you can advocate for better treatment of wildland firefighters, check out the Grassroots Wildland Firefighter Committee. And to donate to organizations that continue to make a meaningful difference in the lives of wildland firefighters who need it, check out the Wildland Firefighter Foundation or the Eric Marsh Foundation. All of these organizations will be linked in this episode's show notes. Finally, I'd like to thank Mystery Ranch and Luke Mayfield for their continued support of the podcast as well as their continued support of advocating for wildland firefighters. Thanks for listening to this episode. Please feel free to reach out if you need any resources or support this off-season. And please make sure that you're reaching out to your crew members from last summer and just taking care of yourselves and each other. This will be the last episode of our first season of Life with Fire, so we'll catch you in season two in a few months. Thanks again for listening, and catch you on the next one.